All right, good morning, everyone. I want to maximize our time with our speaker. I know that others will join us shortly, so we'll get started. Well, good morning. I think you know that I'm Clark Irvin. I'm delighted to be with you this morning. Thank you for joining us on this uh, rainy Sunday in February. Those of you who are regulars know that we here at St. John's, the Church of the President, and February being President's Month, devote three talks each February to a given presidency. And so when Rob and I met a few months ago to talk about which presidency to feature this month, we immediately decided to feature the presidency of Ronald Reagan. And that's for at least two reasons. First of all, of course, President Reagan was among our most consequential presidents. His impact lives on today. And second, even though it was some time ago, there are still people among us who were fortunate enough to have the honor and pleasure of working for him. And we are so pleased to kick off our series, we have such a person in Fred Ryan. Fred served at a very senior level in the White House during uh, both terms of President Reagan. And then when the president retired to his beloved California, Fred served as his chief of staff. He was instrumental in the design, construction, and funding of the Ronald Reagan Library. And fittingly, he now serves as the chairman of the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library Foundation. He's also an author, the author of uh, Wine in the White House, which I look forward very much to reading, published by our friends, the White House Historical Association. And he's also the editor of Ronald Reagan, The Wisdom and Humor of the Great Communicator. And he's also the executive producer of that great series that I think all of us saw, The Reagan Years. As if that is not enough, um, not only has Fred had a long and distinguished career in government and politics, but also a very long and distinguished career in the media. I think as we all know, he is currently the CEO and publisher of the Washington Post. Before that, he was a co-founder of Politico, and he was the president and CEO of Politico. And before that, he was the president and COO of All Britain Communications, an award-winning uh, consortium of television stations. He, in addition to serving on the White House Historical Association Board, serves on the board of the Ford's Theater, the National Geographic Society, and his alma mater, the University of Southern California. And he is joined this morning by his wife, Jenny. So with that, please join me in welcoming Fred Lyon. Thank you so much. Thank you, Clark, for that very kind introduction. Uh, thank you for having me here at the Church of Presidents to talk about a president who certainly changed my life, but I think changed the lives of millions of people around the world, Ronald Reagan. Uh, I know there are many friends here. It's great to see them this morning and a number of people who were associated with President Reagan. So if I get off track, please keep me honest. All right, John? Um, president Reagan would often begin a speech uh, by referring to his previous career, saying that in Hollywood, if you don't sing or dance, you become an after-dinner speaker. And I had the occasion once when he left office of speaking at a conference, certainly before he was the keynoter, and uh, after I spoke, I came up to him and said, well, how did my speech go? And he paused for a second and he said, you should learn to dance. <laughs> so, be forewarned. Uh, but President Reagan was no stranger to St. John's. Uh, it was here that he chose to begin his presidency on inaugural day in 1981. He was back on, to inaugurate his second term, January of 1985. But one even more consequential visit, in my view, took place on March 29, 1981. A day later, an assassin attempted to take his life. And I think if President Reagan were here today, he would attribute his survival to the God that he prayed to when he came to St. John's the day before. Ronald Reagan was a remarkable political figure whose political and policy accomplishments are well documented. Books have been written. 
I'd be happy to talk to you about that today, but instead I would actually urge you to more, learn more about his policy accomplishments and political successes to walk literally across the street to the Ronald Reagan Institute. It's just opened. It's a satellite of the Reagan Presidential Library, and its mission is to tell the legacy of Ronald Reagan here in Washington. So I thought what I would do instead is share some stories and some personal observations that I had over the years of working with President Reagan, things that helped me understand what made his, him successful professionally and to be such a, a transformational leader. I actually first noticed some of these qualities uh, in a church, another church, uh, the Bel Air Presbyterian Church in Los Angeles. I was going there as a college student, and first time I'd ever seen Ronald Reagan. He was the two-term, had just finished two terms, successfully being governor of California, been a movie star, sports announcer, television host. And what really caught me at that first observation was that he was, when it came to church, he wasn't just another worshiper, another person there for the service. He would come in, there was no reserved seat, there was no special area, he would wait his turn with the usher to be seated, and he would participate in the service without any pretense, just like anyone else who come to church. And I saw then, but learned later, that faith was one of the most important priorities in Ronald Reagan's life. Uh, I witnessed it firsthand on a number of occasions. One was, um, as, as Clark mentioned, I had the job of being his chief of staff when he left office. Uh, from the White House, and just before he left, I had an appointment set with him to talk about what his priorities were, what the things were that he wanted to do as a former president. So I had this time with him, and I said, here you are, your health is great, you, you're leaving the White House with the highest ratings of any recent president, what are the things you want to do next? And he said, well, I can start with three. The first one is, I want to go back to church. Because as president, it was, it was quite complicated for him to attend church. The security demands just made it very difficult on other parishioners. The second thing he said was, I want to spend more time on my ranch, which I understood. And the third said, he said, I want to return to that debauchery at the Bohemian Grove. <laughs> and I thought, okay, this post-presidency is going to be interesting. Um, but one of the things about uh, attending church that was true to him was even when he was on the road traveling, he made it a priority to attend church. And there's one case of that story I wanted to share with you. When President Reagan was in Scotland, to receive an award uh, with Margaret Thatcher. And it turned out that the person who was advancing that trip learned that uh, within just a short distance was the church that Ronald Reagan's great-great-grandparents had been married in. And when you're a former president, you don't have quite the security a president has. And you can basically, at least then, you could basically go any place as long as people didn't know in advance that you were coming. So our advanced person staked this out, and President Reagan decided he wanted to go to that church where his great-great-grandparents had been married. So on a Sunday morning, uh, just as the service began, Ronald Reagan and those of us who were traveling with him slipped into the back row. Uh, you can imagine the pastor's eyes nearly popping out of his head, seeing the former president of the United States sitting there. And one by one, uh, the rest of the congregation turned around and wondered what this commotion was in the back of the room. But there was Ronald Reagan. And he had, uh, he made a point afterwards, by the way, to calm the pastor and calm the congregation. But I point this out for a number of reasons. One, that Ronald Reagan um, continued to want to go to church. But secondly, that the person who arranged that was our, your own parishioner, Jonathan Miller, who was that advanced man who found that that was the church where Ronald Reagan had gone. Um, I should also disclose, though, that the primary purpose of the trip was to receive an award that was being given by the Scottish Whiskey Society, which I think, <laughs> I think that's why Jonathan Miller volunteered for this trip. Um, um, 
The other thing about Reagan, President Reagan's faith that struck me was it was demonstrated even in the toughest, most challenging of times, um, including what he wrote about his desire to forgive even John Hinckley, the man who'd attempted to assassinate him. In his diary, President Reagan wrote, I quote this, getting shot hurts. Still my fear was growing because no matter how hard I tried to breathe, it seemed I was getting less and less air. I focused on that tile ceiling and prayed, but I realized I couldn't ask for God's help while at the same time I felt hatred for the mixed up man who had shot me. Isn't that the meaning of the lost sheep? We are all God's children and therefore equally beloved by him. I began to pray for his soul and that he would find his way back to the fold. He went on to write in his diary, I opened my eyes once to find Nancy there. I pray I'll never face a day when she isn't there. Of all the ways God has blessed me, giving me her is the greatest gift and perhaps beyond anything I can ever hope to deserve. Well, one of President Reagan's best qualities besides faith was his humility. He was a person who appreciated simple things and never lost sight of where he came from. He was totally lacking of ego. And he was the same person in private as he was when the cameras were rolling and would treat people with equal dignity and respect, whether you're the Queen of England or the janitor. And that came very clear to me in one experience I observed after he left office. President Reagan had flown out, left on January 20th, the end of his second term, flown out to California, and knowing he was going to be active as a former president, we'd set up, we'd had, they had their home in place, and we found office space. And the plan was that President Reagan was going to take two weeks off, uh, and then he was going to resume an active schedule in the office. So the next day, January 21st, the day after he left office, a number of us were in there and our jeans were hanging pictures on the wall, putting books on shelves and trying to get things ready. And the call came in from the Secret Service that Ronald Reagan was on his way and he'd be there in 10 minutes. <laughs> so we scrambled, we tried to get the place organized, we cleaned ourselves up, he came in, spent a few, a few minutes chatting with everybody and they went into his office. And about an hour later, he came out of his office and he gave me a list of names, a piece of paper with names on it. And he said, I'd like to meet with these people. And I said, sure. I looked at it and having worked for him, I could usually see some theme where if they were friends of Nancy Reagan's or people from the entertainment industry or political figures. And I couldn't figure anything out. So I said, just out of curiosity, who are these people? He said, they're the ones who have been calling. I said, calling? Well, it turned out we'd hooked up the telephones wrong, and the receptionist's phone was ringing on Ronald Reagan's desk. <laughs> and he was answering the phone. You know, Hello, could I speak to Ronald Reagan? This is Ronald Reagan. You know, can I come and see you? OK. Uh, and, and we honored that. We had the people. They all got to come and see him. But the, the lesson that I took away from was here is a person who one day is the most powerful person on the planet. And the next day, he's prepared to be just like any other citizen, answering their phone and doing their own work. Um, he also had something, a, a very special appreciation for people who serve, particularly in the military. And one of the things I think that frustrated him early on as president was that uh, under military protocol, you're not supposed to salute or return a salute unless you're in uniform. And he would step off of Marine One or Air Force One, and there would be a man or woman from the Marines with a crisp salute, and he would kind of walk by, nod his head, say thank you. And he had a, a meeting, uh, actually a, um, a dinner, with the Commandant of the Marine Corps one day, and he said, you know, I have a question for you. I, 
I see these people with these great salutes, but I know you're not supposed to return the salute in civilian attire. What should I do? I'd like to return the salute. And he said, you know, the commandant said, you know what? I don't think anyone will file a complaint if you do. And he began, if you look, starting then, Ronald Reagan would step off, crisp salute to every member of the military. And that's a tradition that every president since then has continued. Um, Reagan, president Reagan also had a gift, I believe, for relationships. And he, he understood them. He understood how to forge relationships, how to nurture them. And regardless of the person's power or position, as I mentioned earlier, he treated all people with equal respect. He simply loved people, and he could relate to the common man. Uh, I had experience that really made that point clear to me when he, uh, when he was out of office. Uh, he was setting up his own presidential library, and he decided to visit some of the other libraries. And one of them was the Eisenhower Presidential Library in Kansas. So he traveled there, and he went into this event, and I was on his staff, and a handful of us would always travel with him. And from the minute he walked in, people were just mauling him, saying, hey, look over this way, take a picture with me. Here, take a picture of my family. Here's this. He's trying to eat. People are coming over, taking pictures while he's eating. He gets up, and he was just being swarmed. So when it was over, I thought, all right, I know I'm in trouble, so I should, I should take this head on. So I was in the car with him, and I said, um, Mr. President, I think I need to offer an explanation about this event. And before I could say anything, he said, aren't people great? <laughs> I said, yes, that's what I was about to tell you. Uh, but he had this ability to uh, things that might be annoying to many of us to, uh, to, to appreciate and respect people. Um, Something else he did was, I believe, uh, that it's, well, it's a tradition that's continued, was giving credit to people who, making sure the people who do good things get credit for it. And this one example started, uh, as a reminder, this week with the State of the Union address. Um, President Reagan, early in his presidency, many of you may recall, the uh, Air Florida flight crashed in the Potomac River, and lives were lost, and there were people who were struggling. There was a young government employee who was driving home, Lenny Skutnik, and uh, he saw people struggling, uh, kicked off his shoes and jumped in the freezing water and, and started pulling people out. And uh, a few days later was the State of the Union address and President Reagan decided that this was a great example of an American hero. So he had in the box seated next to Nancy Reagan was Lenny Skudnik. And that be, and it was, uh, it was something that, it was, it was kept secret. It wasn't written into his speech. So no one, people wondered who that guy was up there. And then President Reagan took a moment to, for all of America to see it and point it out. Um, but he continued that tradition. Every year in the White House, there would be a couple of people who represented great things about our country or themes that he wanted to talk about in his speech. And uh, they would be, they'd be kept secret. We would, in fact, one of the jobs I had was, uh, was in, in, informative to me was, um, getting these people up to the speech. It was, you know, State of the Union night. It's pretty tight security up there. So we would start about two hours in advance and go through every obstacle, every barricade. We finally get these people in and keep them hidden away until the speech. And then afterwards, here they are on national TV and global TV. Everyone knows their name. And there would be lines of United States senators waking up their, their pictures taken with them. So you go from obscure to celebrity in a very short period of time. Uh, but that tradition has continued, and um, now actually it's become, I think they have to expand the size of the box because there's so many people who are being recognized. <laughs> um, at one point, uh, President Reagan's good nature spirit, I think, almost cost me my job. Uh, he, um, this was uh, in, 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 I guess it was July, every summer, 
as I mentioned earlier, this event took place in California called the Bohemian Grove, and he couldn't attend, but senior members of the staff would. And uh, there was uh, one particular summer where the, I was relatively junior on the staff at that time, and all the senior people had gone out to the Bohemian Grove. So plans were put together to make sure that nothing of consequence happened while they were gone. And we loaded up the schedule with things that were meant to be relatively insignificant. And um, one of the jobs that I had was as director of his schedule. I would send things over. You know, he would get hundreds of invitations every day. I mean, he couldn't see all of them, certainly couldn't accept all of them. But we would, on a selective basis, send a cross-section of things over for him to see so he would get a sense of what people were inviting him to do. And one invitation had come in from a group called the American Fitness Society. And they had done some research. They sent this rather lengthy letter, done some research saying that he was the most fit president of the United States that they had researched all the way back to George Washington. They looked at the exercise habits, and they determined that Ronald Reagan was the most fit president. So I sent this to him, and it came back saying, uh, yes, I would like to receive this award. So we set it up during this very quiet time. We saved things that were not going to have any consequence or attention while the senior people were all gone. This guy came to present the award from the American Fitness Society. And I should have said in the invitation, there was a picture of him, and he was this bodybuilder and uh, like a Mr. Universe type. And when he arrived, it, it became clear that was a very old photo uh, <laughs> because he was kind of like a, a walking house. Uh, but he came in, and uh, he had this extensive presentation um, where he went through, and they thoroughly researched every president. He started with George Washington and talked about what George Washington did. And, and John Adams, and I said, you know, you got to move this a little on. How about, how about the 20th century? And he's Teddy Roosevelt. And finally, he comes up to Ronald Reagan. He said, Ronald Reagan, he was a lifeguard. He was a football player. Uh, he worked out every day and rode horses. And he was the most fit president of the United States. And I look over, and President Reagan was just beaming hearing this. I thought, OK. And finally, he gets the award, and he hands it to him. And just as he was about to walk out, this guy, this former bodybuilder, says, Mr. President, would you like to arm wrestle? And I'm like, no. And he president says, sure, why not? So they clear the, the desk, the, 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 the hotlines moved out of the way, and the two of them are arm wrestling, and President Reagan wins. Uh, and then they, he says, I want a rematch, and they do it again. And I was there with actually another very junior staffer, and we're, we're looking at each other saying, we're fired. We're, 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 you know, do I just pack up now, or should we wait until we get fired? And, and they... So then we said, all right, well, um, the, there was a photographer who, showed, who was in there also. And the photographer took a picture. And actually, if you look at that picture, you'll see the two of us jumping out of the background. Because we didn't, we didn't want any proof that we were there. And then it was over. We got the guy out after he, Ronald Reagan beat him arm wrestling twice. And um, said, uh, we both said, OK, this didn't happen. I'll cover for you. You cover me. This didn't happen. And we thought it was done. And about a half an hour later, uh, the White House press secretary called up and he said, this is kind of crazy, but there's a guy standing in front of the White House who said he just arm wrestled the president. Uh, he said, that didn't happen, did it? And I said, well, you know, actually it did. And he said, OK, but thank goodness there's no photo, right? And he said, well, actually there is a photo. So they, they released the photo. And this was a lesson for me, being in the media business later. It was, there was a hard push to get this photo released. So I released it. And uh, that night, I remember watching ABC News. It ended with, with a segment saying, in a carefully orchestrated White House event to show that Ronald Reagan's age was not a liability, they organized an arm wrestling uh, match against a, a bodybuilder. Uh, so 
a, a way, one way that somehow uh, the press occasionally gets things wrong. Uh, also, you know, one kind of reputation President Reagan has had was as, as the great communicator. And a lesson I learned from that was he gave a speech uh, at the time. There was a, a, group, a, a network put together called WorldNet, and it was, it was a part of kind of the USIA and Radio for Europe and Radio Free Asia, and it was, it was the largest, it was billed as the largest address that any human being had ever given uh, in terms of the size of the audience. And afterwards, he, was, he gave the speech, and afterwards, the numbers on the staff were there, and somebody said, you know, do you get nervous when you speak? Particularly, you've just spoken to the largest audience in human history. And, he said, I don't anymore. And he told this story about what he would think about when he was speaking to groups. And it went all the way back early in his career. Uh, his, his dream had been to be a sportscaster. And he finally got an audition. And they actually they said, you're on the air. Try it out. We're going to try you with a real uh, sportscast. And, they, and he told this story where they put him in this little booth with no windows and a microphone in front of him. And they said, broadcast. And he kind of stumbled for a minute. He wasn't quite sure what to do. Uh, and then he remembered, because it was a vast audience, um, but he remembered that every time he went into the barber shop, every two weeks, the barbers, the guys in the barber shop always had the radio on, and he knew they would be listening. So he started talking as though he were talking to the guys in the barber shop, familiar faces, knowing their reactions. And he did that through his radio career, and he did it when he spoke to WorldNet, and when he gave his major addresses out of the Oval Office, he always thought about he personalized it at a very local level and thought about the, the guys in the barbershop who were probably listening. Um, President Reagan's uh, ability to engage and, and communicate well with also served him with leaders on the world stage. If you think back at that time, there were some real giants. Uh, Margaret Thatcher, Kel Gorbachev, Lech Walesa, Pope John Paul II, all of whom Reagan built relationships, and I think that helped change human history. Uh, he and Margaret Thatcher particularly met early in the 1970s when he was a former governor. She was a very junior member of parliament, and he was visiting London, and somebody said, you should meet this Margaret Thatcher. She's a new member of parliament, and uh, we think you might ha have some common interests. So they scheduled a 15-minute meeting that went for two hours, and they realized that they, they were very much aligned and had a shared worldview, and he was very impressed with her, and I, I remember him telling the story that uh, at the time, she was the Conservative Party leader and relatively junior member of Parliament. And a reception was given in his honor that night, and he was talking to a uh, very senior lord over there. And he mentioned, I've just talked to your Margaret Thatcher, and uh, you know, I think maybe someday she could make a great prime minister. And the guy said, are you kidding? A woman prime minister? <laughs> um, but they continued. Uh, she ended up as prime minister, and he ended up as president. And one of the stories he would share was at the very first economic summit, you know, the, the seven nations would gather um, and, and talk about major issues affecting the world, and, and he was at his very first one, Margaret Thatcher, was chairing a session, and he said, the other world leaders there, you had uh, Pierre Trudeau of Canada, and you had the Italian and German and uh, Japanese, and other, the other members, they were just going after her. Every time she would say something, they would, they would counter it, and they would criticize her. And then she went on for the whole session. This was happening. So he said when it was over and they all left, he ran and caught up with her and he said, you know, Margaret, they were just being so incredibly difficult to you. I hope that doesn't bother you. And her response was, women know when men are being childish. <laughs> and he would, President Reagan would tell that story uh, many times over the years. Um, 
And through Margaret Thatcher, began the relationship with Mikhail Gorbachev. And you remember uh, Ronald Reagan, who had been a lifetime anti-communist, um, going back to his days uh, as head of the Screen Actors Guild in Hollywood. Um, he was in office, things were tense, and he had not had a meeting with the Soviet leader. And in fact, there had been three, and his, I mean, his lines were that they kept dying on him. Um, but then Gorbachev came around and arrived on the world stage. And he was smart, he was young, he was media savvy. Um, and Margaret Thatcher met with him first, and she said to Ronald Reagan, I think we can do business with him. Uh, but he had just taken the world by storm. He'd been on 60 Minutes, and they were talking about his intellect, his knowledge, his negotiating skills. And a summit was scheduled, and the, the, there were a lot of people were saying that Gorbachev is just going to eat Ronald Reagan's lunch at this summit. Um, so a lot of preparation went into getting President Reagan ready for the summit. He studied about the various missiles and the ranges and the classes of weapons and the throw weights and the blast zones and all these things so he'd be fully prepared. And he had a meeting with Gorbachev that was very successful. Not only had the summit, but in the course of that, they agreed to two more summits. And afterwards, when he was talking about it, he said to a number of people on the staff, um, he said, I really like this guy, Gorbachev. And he said, well, let me in on a secret. He said, Gorbachev didn't understand that stuff about those missiles either. <laughs> so, uh, and then, uh, of course, here uh, at home, uh, and this is kind of, I think, a time maybe all this wish we could go back to or uh, a culture we could go back to. He and Tip O'Neill, who were, Tip O'Neill was the Speaker of the House and about as opposite politically as you could be, Democrat from Massachusetts, and he and President Reagan would disagree all day uh, and be at opposite sides on the issues, but they would get together at night and have a beer and tell Irish jokes, and uh, they were able to preserve that relationship where you could be, uh, you could be a, a, an opponent but not an enemy. And in fact, there were, I, President Reagan told us one story where he was, um, he, he, one day particularly, uh, Tip O'Neill was very, very critical of everything Ronald Reagan was doing and all of his proposals, and then he saw Tip later that day, and he said, I thought we were friends, what's going on? Tip O'Neill said, well, we're friends after five o'clock. <laughs> so when Ronald Reagan would see Tip O'Neill, he would wind his watch ahead to five o'clock and say, here's, aren't we friends? Um, but if, talking of relationships, of course, you know, the most important relationship in, in President Reagan's life was the love of his life, Nancy Reagan. Um, their romance was legendary. And I think, I think we all know Ronald Reagan was very trusting of people and always saw the best in people and at times could be vulnerable to things people wanted him to do that were not in his interest. And Nancy Reagan on the other side had a, an antenna, ability to, to better understand what people's motives were. She was his protector and I think just about all of us would agree that there could not have been a, a successful Ronald Reagan uh, without Nancy Reagan. Um, one of the things that I would say endeared us most about President Reagan, though, was his sense of humor, uh, which itself was legendary, especially in moments of crisis. And I think we all know the lines when he was shot in, in the hospital with a bullet uh, an inch away from his heart, and the, the doctors were there saying, you know, I hope you're all Republicans. Uh, and, you know, a line from the movie, I forgot to duck. Um, but I can tell you, I saw his, his, his unique sense of humor and perspective firsthand uh, when he was out of office he did quite a bit of traveling. And there was one particular trip we were on in a very small plane, flying from Los Angeles to, uh, to speak, I think, at the University of Arizona. And it was during, uh, it was a very small plane. You could hardly stand up in a little Learjet. 
And uh, he said, usually we would eat on these and meals would be served. And Ronald Reagan was someone who always liked to eat on, uh, on time. And the plane was getting ready to take off. And he said, are we going to have dinner on this plane? I said, yes. And he said, well, who's going to bring it to us? And I said, the co-pilot. The co-pilot will get up when we're taking off. He'll bring the food and the boxes back to us. So the plane takes off. And it's one of the most turbulent flights that you could possibly imagine. We're getting thrown left and right, up and down. And it just didn't stop. It kept going on. And uh, we were all getting pretty nervous. And one of the Secret Service agents leaned over and he said, this isn't good. Uh, and President Reagan says, yeah, we're not going to get our dinner. Uh, so it was always keeping his sense of priorities. Um, but I say, above all, uh, President Reagan was known as an optimist. And one of his favorite stories, I think many of you have heard uh, or heard retold, was about the, 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 the experiment that was done with the, the two young boys, the optimist and the, the pessimist. They wanted to test the range of each. So the, the first thing they did was they found the pessimist, and they brought him outside, and there was a beautiful horse. And they said, this horse is for you. It's a gift. And the pessimist looked at it, and he goes, yeah, but the horse could get sick. The horse may not like me. The horse might run away. It might be hard to ride, and got very upset. And then they brought in the optimist, and they took him outside, and there was no horse. There was a big pile of horse manure. And the, the optimist boy looked at it and started smiling, and he ran over and started digging through it, and they said, what are you doing? He said, there's got to be a pony in here somewhere. <laughs> and that was a line President Reagan used um, frequently when there was a crisis, was to say, there's got to be a pony in here somewhere. Um, I would just say that the, the rare combination of personal qualities that Ronald Reagan had made him the right person at the right time to step in the Oval Office. Um, his record of accomplishments tells a story, and people around the world have many reasons to be grateful for his leadership. I know I am personally grateful for it. I was able to learn by personal example and to have a front row seat to his, some of the things he did that made history. So I just conclude with a couple of reflections that, that captured the world's attention when Ronald Reagan exited the stage, and that was the, the presidential funeral. And a number of people here I know were involved in it. I, um, I was asked to be the, quote, person in charge of his funeral, but I can tell you how the, the very kind of Ronald Reagan version of how that happened. Um, when you're, every, every former president's entitled to a, a state funeral. And, a group from the military comes to tell you about that, and Ronald Reagan was just finishing his second term, his final days of office, and a group from the military came, came in to see him. He was very excited, and they said, we're here to plan your funeral. And that was not something he was really looking forward to and wanted to talk about. And I was standing over the side, and he said, yeah, that, that fellow over there, he's the guy who's going to plan the funeral. And I, me? Uh, but we had a group that um, they came together and worked very hard to make it happen. And I think you'll all remember um, that it was a time that the, when Ronald Reagan did die in 2004, it was a time, even though the country was very divided, that we kind of came together, uh, put the division aside, and there was an enormous outpouring of respect and affection and, and unity, uh, whether through the streets of Washington here, where thousands of people were lining the streets, to California, where he was buried, cars lining the freeways, people out of their cars, people, every overpass crowded with people, there was just an enormous outpouring of respect, and I think everyone appreciated that. Um, and the final thing I would tell you, to end on a, a more of a personal note with President Reagan, after his funeral, uh, my family, Jenny and I and our girls, had scheduled a trip to go to Ireland, and that was already on the books. So we went to Ireland about two weeks afterwards, 
And when President Reagan was in office, he'd visited Ireland, and they, the Irish are very good. They find, that, they find an Irish connection with every president. It doesn't matter who you are. And they even one point tried to say that Obama was O apostrophe Obama. Um, but they, they did find an Irish connection to his family, and they had found this with Ronald Reagan, a little town called Ballyperine in Tipperary, Ireland. And he, Ronald Reagan was very proud. He would actually had a joke. He would say, you know, Kennedy has the JFK airport, Johnson has his Houston Space Center, and I have the Ronald Reagan pub, because on the visit, they named the pub in this little town of 100 people. They named it the Ronald Reagan pub. So he would tell this story. So we were over there, and we said, where is this pub? Let's go there. And it was about 40 minutes away from where we were. So we got up the next day, drove to the pub. We found it. There it was in the middle of this town, but the doors were locked. And, um, but everything was there, so I went and knocked, you know, a lot of times the owner lives upstairs, so we went upstairs and said, do you own the pub? And they said, yes. I said, we, we just drove over, we'd like to see it, and they, they brought us down, they unlocked it, and they brought Jenny and our three daughters in, and we got to see it. And they, um, I said, why is it locked? And she said, we're closing it. Um, and we need more, we need the downstairs, our family's growing, so we need the downstairs of the building. I said, what's going to happen? Uh, and she said, we're going to have an auction, we're going to auction off everything in here. Uh, to different places across Ireland. People will buy it and put it in pubs. And meanwhile, uh, daughters were getting a little restless, so they were walking up and down the street and with Jenny. And I, so I, in the moment, said, well, could I buy this pub? And she said, let me ask my husband. And she came back down. She said, yes, my husband said yes. So <laughs> Jenny comes walking back in, and this woman is hugging me, saying, your husband just bought this pub. Uh, and the look, I got this look of, are you out of your mind? But what we were able to do was we bought it, cut it in sections, transported it out to California to the Reagan Presidential Library. It was reassembled there, right under the wing of Air Force One, where he, the plane he'd used to fly to the pub. And we even managed to get the owners of the pub to fly over when it was opened uh, to be able to, uh, to pour the, the first drink uh, at the Ronald Reagan pub. Um, but I, I do remember that night after we bought this, uh, calling Nancy Reagan, saying, we're over in Ireland, and I just bought the Ronald Reagan pub. And there was a pause, and she said, well, you've been drinking. And I said, well, actually, yes, we had wine at dinner, but I bought the pub before we had the wine. Um, so anyway, it's there, and I hope when you're out in California, visit the Presidential Library, and that you'll have a drink at the Ronald Reagan pub. Um, but thank you, and it'd be my pleasure to answer any questions that I can. There's one back there, yes. Hi, my name is Kyle. But uh, one issue, maybe you don't want to talk about it, is that my observation, Ronald Reagan was slowly slipping into dementia, maybe even starting while he was in office, and it continued after that, and he must have had a front row seat to watch this. Any lessons or observations, like some of us, I hope it's not me, but some of us might slip into dementia ourselves? Yeah, I would say, I mean, I was there literally by his side every day when he left office. Um, and it, it really, it was the doctors and historians all have concluded that there, there really wasn't anything while he was in the White House. And he would leave, um, uh, when he left the White House, he would go every year to the Mayo Clinic for this two, three day examination where they test you physically and they test you a number of tests they run you through mentally to test see your cognitive skills, see if there's any decline. And he left the office in 1989, and it was only um, 1994, so almost well, five years later, uh, at, 
at, at a visit to the Mayo Clinic, they determined for the first time that there was uh, mental decline that was less than age appropriate, or that was greater than age appropriate. And they saw something was there. And you have to remember, Alzheimer's disease was really not, we didn't know much about it back then. Uh, and it was actually, there was kind of a stigma. People wouldn't let it be known if they, they or if a family member had it. So that was in the summer of 1994, and they, they studied him very closely. And at the time, the only way you could really diagnose if you had Alzheimer's disease is to have an autopsy. And they, they, it was by process of elimination. They would rule out a brain tumor, and they'd rule out different things, and then they would conclude that it was Alzheimer's. So they, they had doctors come and literally stay with him at his house for a few weeks. And then finally, uh, in November of 94, they actually, Mrs. Reagan called me up and said, uh, you know, the doctors have concluded that he does have they think it's Alzheimer's disease, and they're going to tell him tomorrow. Um, so I went over, she said, could you come over to the house? And the doctor explained it to him, uh, that he had it, and he listened very attentively. And then you may remember, he sat down, and he wrote this handwritten letter to the American people saying, I've recently learned that I've been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. And he, he went through to talk about it, because he learned while he was president, when he got, uh, when he got a hearing aid, because he had a hearing problem, there was this huge lift in people across the country getting hearing aids who need them, but they just felt that it was, there was a little stigma attached to it. And, but if the President of the United States could have one, that it was okay. And then he had, he had colon cancer surgery, and uh, he was very open about that. So he felt Nancy Reagan's breast cancer, they were very open, so he thought the best thing to do would be open, open about this. And he, so he wrote this letter, and I remember this very clearly, and then he handed it to me, and he said, can we get this typed up? And he said, well, this is in your own hand. That would be even better if we released it in your own hand. People would know exactly what your condition is. So it was released, and it certainly drew a lot of attention. But uh, following that, I should say, and working in his office, we got literally tens of thousands of letters, and many of them had proposed solutions, uh, uh, cures for Alzheimer's. And there were some interesting ones in there <laughs> involving aluminum foil and all these things, but we thought, what if one of them actually works? Maybe we should publish this. Uh, but, you know, but Nancy Reagan then became very involved with the Alzheimer's Association and then stayed involved in, for the rest of her life. Sure. Hi, uh, my name is Frank Potts. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, it seems every presidential administration has some domestic crisis or scandal. And for the Reagan administration, it was obviously a rock. But the administration wasn't that. Uh, what can you say about how President Reagan led his team through that, uh, that helped uh, lead to that particular outcome? Well, I mean, you're right. That was, uh, you know, that was, uh, it became a difficult time. He'd had his, his, the colon cancer surgery shortly before that. Um, I, I think, how did, how did he survive that, that scandal and uh, when others haven't? I, I would say a couple of things. One was uh, he, had, he, his, he started off with a pretty high approval rating. Uh, there had not been many uh, scandals of consequence, although every administration is going to have them. It, it just, if he would, President Reagan would make a statement that at the time he said there's, there are over a, a one million government employees. I can guarantee you at this very moment someone's doing something wrong. Um, and um, I think part of it was being transparent. Um, he, as you may recall, he, he spoke to the nation and, and then he appointed a commission to investigate, an independent commission to come back. So. Being as transparent as possible, uh, having independent groups look at it and come back and report, I think those are a couple lessons that probably hold true today. The back, yes. Robert Reagan, obviously you like horses and hard work. Do you have a favorite horse or work combined anecdote that you'd like to share? 
Um, well, he, he, you know, you, you could see that exactly what you described in his ranch. He had a ranch in Santa Barbara. And back at, the, at this time in the 80s, there was a show, you may remember Dynasty, where the giant mansion in, in Texas and all that. And people knew Ronald Reagan had a ranch, and they assumed that it was something like that. But his ranch was a 1,500 square foot building, it had no heating, no air conditioning. And he had built just about every aspect of it himself. He had, he, he want himself. He wanted to uh, build a corral, and he, he saw that uh, the phone company had taken out some old telephone poles. This was between being governor and president, so he asked if he could have those old phone poles, and he cut them up himself, and he built this fence. And he, I think he, he liked doing that anyway, but I think there's also th something, if you look back, a little bit therapeutic with presidents, the idea of clearing brush. They like this, there's some symbolism between clearing brush on their, their ranch or their farm and what they're trying to do in the White House. But he, he was an outdoor person, he loved it, loved it. He had a saying, there's nothing as good for the inside of a man as the outside of a horse. Uh, riding, just riding was something he enjoyed. Linda's question. Uh, that was really good, that was really good, that was really good. I think he was he was pretty optimistic that, that things would change. It could, because one he had he had he and Gorbachev had bonded uh, and formed this incredible relationship. In fact, as, as you know, since you were intimately involved in organizing, when President Reagan died, Gorbachev flew all the way around the world to be here to, to pay his respects. So the, he knew the relationship was there. I think he, he also believed that the system wouldn't work uh, and couldn't succeed. And he had this, this thing he would always talk about. Every time the plane would take off on the plane from Los Angeles, he would look down and he would say, see all those swimming pools down there in these people's backyards? He said, I would love to get Gorbachev up in a plane so he could see that ordinary working Americans have swimming pools because they don't have those over in Russia. Um, but he remained in contact with Gorbachev. He went over to see him when um, uh, he was um, a former president. Gorbachev was still in power. Um, in fact, one story I, that stuck with me from that, you may appreciate, they, they had a close relationship and they would embrace each other when they saw each other. And there was a lot of symbolism behind that too. And when he went over to Russia as a former president, we had, we had this trip we called the Victory Tour. It started uh, in Berlin. We went to the Berlin Wall, chipped a piece off of it because the wall had come down, then went to, uh, to Poland to see Lech Walesa, who was just emerging as the leader uh, before he was uh, prime minister there, and then uh, president, and then um, went from there to Moscow to see Gorbachev. And this idea of the embrace, so we reminded him before his meeting, you know, you guys always embrace, and if you don't, people are going to wonder what's happening here. So he got out of his car to go in to see Gorbachev, and Gorbachev came to the door of the Kremlin, which is very unusual, kind of make the gesture. Instead of you come to his office, he came to the door, and President Reagan reached out to embrace him, and Gorbachev stepped back and, and pushed him away. And we were like, uh-oh, what's happened here? It turned out that there's a Russian tradition that if you embrace under a doorway, it means you want to end the friendship. So they got inside and embraced. Um, but I think, and he, you know, he, with George Bush, 41, his vice president and, and good friend, they were in touch a lot about every, every time, every time Bush had a summit with Gorbachev, they would talk. So I think he was optimistic that it would, would end. Final question, Brent. We've got one minute. Um, sure. Okay. 
Yeah, he's got his hand up back there. When did he decide to tell Mr. Gorbachev to tear down this wall? And what point did he decide to say that? Well, it's interesting. He, he, did his, he was doing a trip to Berlin, and you remember President Kennedy made a very famous speech in Berlin earlier where he said, uh, I am a Berliner, kind of symbolizing um, what the, the, the world was, was with Berlin. And he wanted the wall to come down. There's an interesting story that he, he was going to make a speech at the wall. And the, the speech got drafted. It's another lesson I learned about how politics works. But the speech got drafted. And it, it, he wrote in there, tear down, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And it was staffed around. Every presidential speech, especially anything that's uh, international, gets a lot of scrutiny to make sure that it's perfectly worded. Every time it got circulated among the staff uh, and sent over to the State Department, it would come back with that line scratched out. And he kept putting it back in, and it kept getting taken out. And as I mentioned, one of the jobs I had was the scheduling. So this got to a point where the State Department said, we want to bring over our expert on Germany and Eastern Europe to tell President Reagan why that line should not be in there. And we scheduled the meeting. I said, I was scheduling. I remember that. And they came in, and they, he listened to them thoughtfully and then thought about it. In the end, he said, no, I'm going to put this line back in. Became one of his most famous speeches ever. And, uh, and by the way, just before he gave that speech, he was looking over from the Reichstag over to the east side. He could see over the wall, and he could see the German uh, police pushing people back because they knew he was going to be speaking. They kept pushing him back. And I think it's a little bit of the, the actor in him where he didn't like his audience being pushed away. So when he delivered that line, you listen to the speech, all of a sudden he punched it when he got to that. But the lesson I learned in politics was several years later, I was over in Berlin and at an event. Um, and David Galley, we were, we were with, involved with Riggs Bank, and uh, there was an event there, and they said the speaker is the person who told Ronald Reagan to say, tear down this wall. And he's, I said, well, that's interesting. I'd like to find out who that is. It was the guy from the State Department who'd come over and said, don't use that one. <laughs> so people are willing to kind of uh, rethink things as time goes on. Everyone.